Hi, it's Hero, and this is the All of Us podcast. Welcome back. Today, we have on a wonderful woman named Mary Tate, who is the founder and CEO of Tate Psychotherapy. She's an LCSW, which means licensed clinical social worker, and she, as well as her practice, work with clients ranging from children to adolescents to young adults, as well as whole families. She began her clinical career with providing in-home therapy to families in New York City who risked foster care placement, and she also served as the Director of Social Work and Admissions at New York City's only pediatric nursing facility for children and adolescents living with HIV and AIDS. I came to know of Mary as well as her practice, Tate Psychotherapy, through my sister-in-law, actually. I was kind of going through this time where I was expressing to my sister-in-law why I was being drawn to becoming a therapist myself and sort of an issue that I was finding with my therapist at the time, where I just felt like the whole experience was feeling very disconnected from the place I was at in my life or that I am at in my life, as well as my generation. I just felt like every therapist that I had had was of a much older generation, hadn't grown up in the world that I'm, I've grown up in and I'm continuing to grow up in. Um, and yeah, there was just this disconnect. And I was telling her, I feel like there needs to be a new generation of therapists. I mean, obviously the work that previous generations of therapists um, and the work that they continue to do and the research is so important. But I think that there's really a gap in resources and mental health resources and professionals that understand what it is to grow up in the world with social media and just the chaos that ensues in this specific time um, in our young lives. I just, uh, yeah, I thought that there needed to be sort of a new approach to therapy. And she said that she had a friend who was doing just that with her practice. And I looked into what Mary was doing and indeed she has founded this private practice that she started with the intention of creating a modernized experience that was inviting and young and just um, sort of refreshing um, from the therapy experiences that we've become sort of accustomed to. I think that there are a lot of very wonderful therapists and I've had wonderful therapists before that were sort of 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 an older generation. Um, But it can seem kind of uh, distant and foreign and kind of exclusive too. Like it's hard to get in with really reputable therapists and it's, they're tough waters to navigate. And I think that what Mary is doing and what the other women in her practice are doing is extremely important and it's something that I look forward to continuing the tradition of when I finally become a therapist and have a have a private practice myself that being said this is my opinion as a 25 year old woman there are also um, obviously a range of other age groups that also need therapists and for a lot of people um, having a 30 or 35 or 28 year old therapist wouldn't work. Um, for instance, somebody like my mom probably would resonate a lot more with a therapist her own age. So this is coming from my perspective as a 25 year old woman. All that being said, I really can't wait for you guys to hear this conversation between me and Mary. She's just 
a wonderful person and so cheerful and real and just a really refreshing perspective in the mental health community. She's wonderful. And I can't wait for you guys to hear a bit about what she does. Also, on a bit of a more personal note, I was listening back to this episode yesterday when I was editing it. And even though it is a couple of months old, it just resonates a lot, I think, with just the past week that I've had and that we've all sort of had. I know that two days ago, I think it was on the 15th, yeah, two days ago, um, the New York Times cover was a map with all these dots on it. And it said, I think it was about, I don't know what it said, I forget what it said, but it was about the fact that in the last two years, we've lost about a million people um, from COVID. And I think that the conversation around COVID and the death toll conversation around COVID has become sort of, this is awful to say, but kind of exhausted. Like we've talked about it so much over the past couple of years that we've kind of become numb to the effect of it and desensitized to the weight of that information um, of a million people being lost. It's just, um, it's a lot to sit with and it's kind of unfathomable to really think about or process And I truly don't think, and this is something that Mary and I talk about in the episode, as much as we've kind of felt the effects of all of this and the trauma of all of it, I don't think that a lot of the sort of mental and psychological repercussions of that trauma has fully manifested or um, sort of come to reveal itself. And I think that while it seems like now sort of an old conversation or something that we've been dealing with for a long enough time, so to speak, I really don't think that we can stop um, just being really mindful with how we are taking care of ourselves um, in continuing to process the trauma of the last couple of years. It's been a lot, and I don't think that we fully realize Um, what an impact it's made uh, in terms of the sort of aftershock of all of it. I think we've sort of gone through like the earthquake, not to make a kind of like obvious analogy, but we've gone through sort of the earthquake of all of it. But dealing with the aftershock is still something that um, we are experiencing and that I think we will continue to experience for some time to come. So I do think that while this conversation is a couple months old, it is more sort of relevant than ever um, and I'm glad to be sharing it with you guys. Something else too that comes up in sort of the beginning of this conversation um, and I I mentioned that this was recorded a few months ago and at the time that I recorded it I was still in a relationship. I was living with my boyfriend and I talk about the fact that I don't know how I would have gotten through COVID without that situation and without that support. And even still, I kind of believe that. I think it was a blessing that we sort of found ourselves in the situation that we were in during that really tumultuous time. And I speak about how much it supported me mentally and just with my mental health struggles, how much it sort of was there for me and allowed me to feel held and supported in ways that really, I think, helped me to stay healthy. But yesterday, actually, I was driving along thinking about um, just even now how much of a different situation I'm in. Um, I live alone now again, and I'm a single person again. And if you would have told me 
a couple months ago that this would be my situation, I wouldn't have been able to believe it. I wouldn't have known how I would sort of cope. I just kind of, I thought about it, but then here I am and I'm doing honestly really well and I'm taking care of myself and I'm really happy and experiencing new things and friendships. And there's just so much light that's come out of um, some of the darkness that I've experienced in the past couple months. And then I got to thinking about like even years back, if you would have kind of sat me down and said like, these are all the things that you will go through in the next, I don't know, five years. So much of it would have been unbelievable to me in terms of some of the lows that I've experienced. But then I think about all the highs that I've experienced and also just the fact that I'm here and I'm totally okay. Um, And I've coped with a lot of it. It's been obviously some of it so heartbreaking and difficult but here I am and I'm totally okay and I think that's just an important message to hear I think for everyone the fact that we go through so much and experience I think as a collective and individually so much anxiety and a lot of it is so heavy and I think a lot of us kind of deal with things or imagine things that we could deal with potentially that we're like I don't know how I would ever get through it but then here we are and at the end of the day like we're all totally fine it's even when it feels like it's not fine we're all going to be okay for the most part um and I think just trusting that and looking back on some of what you've experienced that if you would have been told this is what you're going to experience you wouldn't be able to imagine being okay but then seeing that here you are you've come out the other end and you are okay. I think whether or not you're going through something like that now of just feeling super shaky and um, uncertain, I think just having that sort of perspective of zooming out and realizing some of the things that you've gone through and um, how you've been able to come out of them um, sort of stronger and, or even not stronger, but still okay. I think it's an important thing and it's something that comes up in this in this discussion with um with me and Mary and yeah so I hope that this week everyone is doing well and is in a good place and just um keeping things light um or as light as possible and yeah so with that here is the conversation with me and the beautiful Mary Tate when I have the headphones in, it reminds me of those like ASMR YouTube people. Oh my gosh. I it's, love that. it's yeah. so crispy. So <laughs> I always crispy. feel like I should be like chewing something or like playing <laughs> with know. my hair. There's, there's so many. I like the, um, I like the ones where it's like, they like tap things. Like they're like, yeah. like have the nails. Like, I'm like, that is so satisfying. <laughs> This thing. Yeah, it's a whole it's a whole world out there. Oh my gosh. No, I, I love it. I love all that stuff. So it's a, a great uh, coping skill too for lots of clients that I work with. Oh my with. God, totally. I can't imagine. I feel like on one end of it, it's like relaxing to listen to it and to to have that as something that like makes you relaxed and makes you feel yeah. sort of in a certain mood. But then I feel like doing it is probably uh, also very satisfying. Absolutely. I I've just, definitely just, thought about making yes. a foray. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I, um, I've worked at... Um, or I didn't work there. I had like toured a facility once where they had like a, you know, like they'll have like a sensory room full of slime, full of oh like, you know, like the moon chairs. And I'm like, can I work here? <laughs> like, can I like this be my office? That would be great. <laughs> As like a treatment option, like, like a feature. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, so kind of like in residential yeah. and uh, like inpatient settings, like having a sensory room. So rather than like de-escalating them, um, you know, with, with uh, more kind of invasive things, being able to l- allow them to calm themselves down. I was like, that is genius. <laughs> that is amazing. It's incredible. Yeah, it's yeah, very like, like new age too. I feel like this is the kind of thing that we need for people now, especially that like now that things like ASMR and that kind of like all this slime and internet yeah. stuff is like, I feel like with the internet, all of these sensory things have been like heightened. Yes. Which is great. Thing that we need. Everyone doesn't realize that they're like in mindfulness training, like as all they, the time as they flip the through time. TikTok and Instagram. Yeah. So how are you doing? Are you in, you're in New York right now? I'm in New York. Yes. So, um, I am, uh, coming uh, or I'm um, not in my office because we are uh, dealing with the after effects of the the hurricane or hurricane tropical storm Ida so we're uh hanging out because our um uh my apartment got water damage so now I'm just hanging out doing telehealth from the my bedroom (laughs) how did you get affected well it was um it was kind of sneaky like something about our air conditioning unit like so much rain got in it and then it like, and we don't have a window unit. We have like one, like a indoor in the apartment unit, but I guess something with the drain and the drain leaked. So the next day we woke up and like all of our hardwood floors were like bumpy. And I was like, uh Oh, oh. <laughs> I was like, I think some water got into our floors and our walls. Um, so yeah, now they're, they're here, uh, hanging out and putting all new floors down. So oh, I'm so sorry I'm trying, to hear that. I'm trying to think of it as like, this is a know, really reframing it as a, um, like, this is my HGTV. This is like demo day. And I'm going to have like a beautiful new, <laughs> a beautiful new room once this is all done. Yeah. <laughs> so Did like your, I didn't ask for. Was your office affected as well? Thankfully not. Okay. Uh, but we have um, on Wednesdays, one of my therapists is there in person. So, okay. uh, so I do telehealth on Wednesdays anyway, but typically I have a a different background than my headboard, but, um, I, I was like, I like put it just right. It looks like I'm just against a wall. <laughs> yeah. What it looked like, what it looked like to me. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you founded and run Tate psychotherapy, which I'm obsessed with for a million reasons. And I'll just tell you, I'm going to tell you why I'm obsessed with what you do before we get into talking <laughs> about how you started it and everything. Basically I'm currently studying to be an MFT, which for those of you listeners who don't know, it's marriage and family therapy counselor, I guess would be the right term. Um, So it's essentially becoming a therapist, which is not anything that I ever really thought I would be doing. I fully thought that I was going to be in the art world and doing something creative always for my whole life. And then sort of as I struggled with my own mental health obstacles Um, it became really apparent to me that not only um, how much sort of people of my generation and younger were struggling with like a whole new set of obstacles to a much more intense degree, I think, than before, just because of all of the new stimuli that are involved in our everyday life. Um, But also there was this huge thing that I noticed where I was lucky enough from a very young age to have access to therapy, which is not something that everyone has. But I noticed that there was a huge thing going on with me and then my peers that also had access to therapy of 
like air quotes, my therapist doesn't understand like my life. Um, All of my therapists that I had seen were over the age of 50, I would say, didn't grow up in any way with the internet being an everyday thing. Um, The level that like media sort of perpetuates this like body complex. They just, none none of the people that I was seeing understood really on a deep level what I was going through, um, which made me feel like kind of a teen going with their parents. (laughs) Like, you don't get it, mom. But it was really this huge thing. And so a huge part of what has inspired me to go down this path is that I do believe that we need a whole new generation of young mental health practitioners that really understand the obstacles that the younger generations are are sort of dealing with. And so that's what you do. And I hadn't really found anything like that, the sort of the most like innovative thing that I was seeing in terms of mental health was like better help, which like now I think is kind of, I don't really know, um, like they sponsor the podcast and it's amazing. And I do think I've like had a session just to see if I resonated with it before I you know, had them as a sponsor. And I think it's an amazing thing in terms of providing access to a much broader um, sort of population of people. But I do think people don't really know how to approach it because it has grown to be such a huge thing. And I think people are sort of intimidated by that and don't know if they're receiving the same level of care that they would be in like a more boutique setting. Um, And so you're the first person and Tate Psychotherapy is the first sort of organization slash company practice that I've ever seen that's kind of like a nice in-between of like accessible, young and updated, but also like the same kind of like high level of individualized, like personal care that would be provided by like a sort of renowned, like independent therapist. So that's, that's why I think it's, it's so amazing. And yeah, I've really never seen anything like it before. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, with, you know, starting kind of like why I became a therapist and my backgrounds in social work. Um, so after my MSW program um, and I have my BSW undergrad in social work. So I've always wanted to, uh, being a therapist was always the goal. Um, but in the social work route, you know, going directly into private practice isn't the isn't the typical um, route. We have kind of a different uh, period of time for licensure. Um, But this was always, you know, I was always like, I can't wait to go to private practice, like do therapy that I want to do um, in the way that I would want to be a patient in therapy and show up and what that experience would be like. Um, And I think with COVID, um, it really helped me to be able to grow that, not just, and we can talk I'm sure we'll dive into telehealth and COVID and all of those things. Um, But I really do think there's so much significance on how this pandemic has shifted mental health, not just for people seeking therapy, but for therapists as well, and our ability to um, connect in the way that we want to connect through technology, through Instagram, through TikTok, through, you know, all of these outlets where we weren't really seeing therapists before. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, every therapist in my practice, which were small, um, but we're all, you know, women in our twenties and thirties, we grew up with the internet. We grew up with like all of the, you know, all of these things. Um, so we know we're looking for, what are the things that we haven't been seeing normalized on in the media and our communities. Um, so that's been very exciting. So I'm glad that that is how we are being presented <laughs> to you as well. 
Yeah, totally. I think it's, it's so amazing. And it's so sort of like, what is what's needed and, and will be so essential to our generation and and younger generations. And even now the older generations too, I think um, some of the most like social media addicted and internet addicted people are like, not my generation, but generations much older. Oh my God. Um, no, my, my grandma is like every day, like getting recipes off Facebook. So she's yeah. like her best life. <laughs> totally. So with going into, you said that it was sort of like always the dream to be a therapist. What, can I ask what kind of inspired that? And also why did you choose to go the social work route as opposed to sort of an MFT route or anything yeah. else? Yeah. So, um, kind of the, my, my go-to of like why I became a social worker. Um, so both of my parents were both, uh, like helping professionals. My dad's actually was actually a social worker. Um, and he's in a different, uh, field now, um, in more like the education world. Um, and my mom was, uh, keep talking past tense is (laughs) in the special education. Um, and so I was always kind of around, you know, similar, you know, people helping people. Um, and I was myself as a kid, I was your classic anxious child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I also saw a therapist who was, who happened to be a clinical social worker, um, and adored her. Um, and so it was, uh, you know, always kind of a thing that I thought was really cool and guidance counselors and, you know, with talking about mental health and that was always a really big thing in my family. Um, so I had initially gone into um, undergrad as a psychology major and then had was thinking more of like, oh, I want to be a clinical psychologist, go get my psych D. Um, but as a part of, I think like my freshman year electives, you had to take like some like intro courses and, you know, whatever, like freshman year, they make you take weird things to fill up your credits. Um, and I was like, well, you know, my dad's a social worker. I'll take an intro to social work class. And I loved it. Um, And I think the things that set me apart um, in social work um, versus going maybe more of a psychology route, um, I really did um, love the emphasis on things like social justice and community work um, and some of, and also kind of the clinical piece that social workers have in in the communities. Um, So that piece, you know, while, you know, after the fact, I was like, oh, private practice sounds amazing. Um, at the time, really being able to be someone that could work in a hospital or someone that was working at hospice or at a nonprofit, um, that was really inspiring to me at the time to be able to be the mental health person <laughs> in those types of settings. Um, so yeah, after um, after my undergraduate, went and got my master's um, in social work and then decided to move to New York City, um, where becoming a social worker can be very difficult <laughs> um, with um, all the licensure red tape, um, which I could probably talk like for hours about how it is the absolute worst um, and limits treatment and accessibility to mental health care. Um, but once um, I was able to get my license, I worked in you know the communities here, uh, worked in foster care prevention, um, worked in areas that weren't necessarily like face-to-face psychotherapy clinical work, um, but I was out doing clinical psychotherapy work in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And I felt that um, that was essential in kind of also me growing my practice in kind of the the area it is now. Um, So 
lots of different skill sets first, you know, that brought me to like kind of having this strong psychotherapy one-to-one private practice approach. Yeah. So in going down the social work route, I think we've talked about in our prior conversation, the fact that while obviously you deal with some tough situations in a private practice, I think it's a whole another realm of intensity when you're doing social work, working in a hospital, working in like foster care situations. It's obviously just intense on a level that I think is a lot more difficult to come by when you're working in a private practice with individuals who kind of, I don't, it's a lot, I think it it can be a lot tougher. Um, And I'm already kind of being prepped for that and doing my practicum work. They tell us a lot about how it can be a very intense experience depending on where you get your hours. Um, It can, And a big part of it too, and it's something that I talked to my therapist about who he did his practicum work in a a really tough situation. Um, And he told me like kind of flat out, it can be a little bit discouraging in terms of like, it's a really big sort of test in terms of like, if you, if you can continue and if it can be something that, that you are able to cope with emotionally and mentally in terms of it being a career, like it's a really big test. And so as you sort of described yourself as being a bit of an anxious kid, did it sort of, I guess I'm curious to know how you knew you were strong enough mentally to do that kind of work and in that setting. And if there was ever a time where you were like, holy shit, I don't know if I can do (laughs) it. Absolutely. I think sometimes I still have those moments. I'm like, do I know what I'm doing? Um, But I think, um, the, the element of like thinking that I could do it or being anxious, um, as like, I tell this a lot to my clients that like, how is your anxiety helpful? Mm. And so for me, some of my anxiety symptoms very much kept me like, they were very motivating and really made me want to problem solve, um, in the moment, maybe when I got home after I would be like, oh my gosh, (laughs) but, um, in the moment it really helped me be a really good advocate. Um, and my anxiety was helpful in like making sure that things were taken care of for my clients. Um, and you know, I have since then, you know, worked on those skills to make sure anxiety is not a part of that. Um, but I was very, you know, kind of this drive to really want to be able to help people that had, you know, experienced, you know, symptoms and dealt with things and, you know, in my life with anxiety in their lives, um, that was really, that kind of overpowered any of the self-doubt. Um, and I was just very, very interested. I think I was very curious, um, and being curious is, I think the most, one of the most important parts of being a therapist, um, as a social worker, as an LMFT, as a psychologist, psychologist psychiatrist curiosity is so important. Um, and I think that really outweighed a lot of my self-doubt and anxiety mm. about kind of moving forward. Yeah. So for those who don't know, would you mind just talking a bit about the dip, the main sort of differences between being a social worker and then going into private practice, like LMFT style work? Yeah. Okay. So what's, what's actually really funny is, um, they, there's a, there's a lot of similarities, um, regarding like if, if I was in a room with, um, LMFTs and psychologists and psychiatrists and, um, LMHCs and LPCs, um, which are licensed mental health counselors and licensed, licensed 
practice counselors. I, I can't even keep up. Every state is different, so it's really hard. Um, but the, the main way that I kind of look at it as um, each state, it's going to be different. So with, um, with kind of the tier of how insurance companies tend to look at it, I think is the easiest way. Mm-hmm. So we have three tiers. There's a, a master level clinician. Um, those are going to be people who have their master's in social work, their master's in marriage and family therapy, master's in mental health counseling. Um, and so they're kind of in a clump. The clump above that um, is going to be your psychologist. So that's psych, psych D um, or a PhD of psychology. And then the tier above that is going to be psychiatry. So those are um, people who went to medical school or nurse practitioners. Um, so those are that tier, that top tier are people who can prescribe medications. Mm -hmm. Um, So the tier below that, the psychologist, those are people that can do psychotherapy just as, you know, just kind of normal therapy. They also can do testing. Um, So that's kind of the separate piece. Psychologists do not prescribe medications. The tier below that which not less than, but just below that. Um, so master level clinicians, um, those are people who solely provide psychotherapy. Um, so that's kind of their niche, their preference. And that's kind of what, what I am and what you're studying to mm-hmm. be um, really focusing on the talk, the talk therapy piece. Um, so those are the three tiers. Um, the differences between like an LCSW and a LMFT um, are really going to be based off of one, the licensure regulation. So in New York state, for me to become an LCSW, I had to have a master's degree and I had to have three years of supervised work and pass two board exams, um, before I could go into private practice, um, for LMFTs there, I'm not sure exactly what it is. I'm supervising an LMFT right now. And I think hers is like 1300 hours um, and a hundred hours of supervision. And then she could be fully licensed. Um, however, in North Carolina, where I'm originally from, those could be totally different. Um, so the important thing I think to remember is that we're all, we're, we're all learning a lot of the same information. <laughs> we're all learning how the same skills, um, the same ways to do talk therapy. Um, but, you know, your LMFT, for instance, might have more experience in a, in a truly psychotherapy clinical setting. A social worker might have therapy counseling experience in different settings um, before you see them in private practice. But also you can see LMFTs in hospitals too. So it's, you know, I, I think there's, um, you know, it's so much, you know, more important to look at the person you're working with um, and if you get along with them, that's kind of how uh, the best way that I describe it. Um, but it yeah. gets very confusing. <laughs> so with Tate psychotherapy, are all of the therapists within your practice LMFT therapists, or do you also have social workers? So I have right now, I have two, um, LCSWs. So clinical social workers and one LMFT, um, who I'm supervising. So, kind of a funny way to look at that too is um, I'm, I'm an LCSW. I have an LMFT who's working on her license. Uh, and because I'm a clinical social worker, I'm still able to supervise her. And so she's okay. learning, she's learning from me as an LCSW. Um, so that 
you know, that's, that really shows that there's not a lot of, uh, different, <laughs> different things we're worried about per, per what we're learning and, and doing with folks. Got it. So as you said, the, the practitioners in your practice are all relatively young and obviously there is the kind of case of like, Oh, when I, like when I've talked to anyone about the fact that the therapists I've seen are like over the age of 50 and they all like, while sure there are a lot of issues that I deal with that they kind of, in my opinion, like can't fully grasp just because we've grown up in such a different world. There's also sort of the case to be made of like, oh, but they have the years and years of experience. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious in terms of running a practice that's made up of younger practitioners, what does that kind of vetting process look like for you? And like, what are your goals? What is very important to you um, in terms of like bases that need to be covered as a young practitioner yourself? And then as somebody that's hiring other young practitioners, um, just because you got like, you are very young. And I think yeah. there is like, I don't know. Um, I'm just curious as like someone who wants to be a practicing, like really young practitioner yeah. in the near future, what are sort of the most important things that you sort of consider? Totally. Well, I think that the, the most important thing is looking at, you know, when you're running any business, who, who you're marketing to, right. Mm-hmm. And some people are going to want therapists that have 30 years experience. And if that's kind of what they're looking for, then we're, we're not the therapist for you because not all my therapists are 30 years old. Yeah, <laughs> so, totally. you know, um, that would, and, and in fact, where we would all be small children <laughs> when yeah. they would start. So, um, looking at it, you know, in that perspective, you know, really, looking at who we're marketing to and what is the value that we bring as younger practitioners. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not like, I think that just because we on, on the scale of years, um, that doesn't make us less effective as therapists. Um, it doesn't make us necessarily like less experienced because I mean, Experience, I think, can be a very gray term when we're, you know, looking at ourselves as healers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, our license, our degree, um, those are things we need to do to to be able to practice psychotherapy. But all of us also come with our lives. And I think that is so significant. And when you are a therapist, um, yeah, like, you know, where you worked, where you trained, all of that's important. But, you know, when I'm sitting with the client, I'm, I'm very much Mary. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, not so much like a clinical social worker. Um, and so that, that doesn't really, you can't really compete that in comparison. You know, you're putting me in front of maybe someone who is a, a 60 year old therapist. They have, they've had a completely different life than I've had. Um, and just because they've had more of it doesn't necessarily mean that it's better or as or, you know, more significant than what I can bring. Um, and I think just being able to be very open and being very much ourselves. Um, I think one of the biggest changes in the shift of therapy from like more of a like millennial Gen Z perspective is, you know, in, in therapy school, there's so much about, uh, therapists being a blank slate and like your clients should know nothing about you. And, with social media, that's just not kind of what we grew up with, you know, uh, you know, we, we grew up with showing everything, you know, like 
showing our, our, you know, 13th birthday party and like what you're eating. And we're so used to sharing and, and sharing with others and consuming that from other people that I think it would be really, really strange. Um, and, and not authentic for me to, you know, be someone's therapist and they not know that, you know, what I'm having in my coffee or I'm visiting my family in North Carolina or, that, you know, I have a dog and, you know, I live in the neighborhood, um, all of these things that maybe would be very taboo, um, in the past, um, or that, you know, I talk freely about my struggle with anxiety and that I take anxiety medication, um, as a way to connect and, and feel really authentic. Um, I've, you know, I think that's a very much a more new age therapy, thing, um, including with, you know, we have a practice Instagram and a, you know, we're kind of hoping to work on our practice TikTok, um, in the works. <laughs> um, but, um, but, you know, with Instagram, we're sitting, you know, we're sitting in our apartment or, you know, talking about our lives a little bit. Um, and I think that is, that is the biggest difference. Yeah. That's something that I really wanted to talk to you about too, is that as like, I'm in, therapy school essentially right now. And we're learning about all these kind of like traditional, like the founding fathers of psychotherapy Mm -hmm. and the practices and the different treatment modalities. And I just think like, first of all, the way that the traditional therapy was founded is like a very like white male Eurocentric (laughs) framework of practicing, which like doesn't work for like our population here today and like who right. who's seeking therapy. It's just not like a one size fits all situation now more than ever. I think it just like doesn't really apply and it needs to change. But also like what you're saying, I too feel that in this sort of like with the idea of like a therapist should be a blank slate. I feel like the whole reason that I'm doing this is because I feel like my experience and sharing my personal experience with a very sort of, um, open, like a a very open sort of like level of candor. I think that it's worth something and it would be kind of put to waste if, first of all, I thought it would be sort of being put to waste if I didn't like do this, if I didn't kind of go down this route and do this kind of work. But then also if I went down this route and I'm doing this work and kind of like abandon what I've been through just to kind of like listen and be like a sounding board for clients, I also feel like would be a bit of a waste of an experience, not for me, because it'll always be really meaningful and useful to me. But I just think it can definitely right. be a tool to help to help other people going through the same or similar situation. So I totally agree with you. Um, and yeah, I think I think also with the sharing and sort of therapists needing to be like very private and secretive about their own lives. I just think that again, with like social media and all of that, it shouldn't be this sort of trade-off, especially with like a generation. I can, I think it can be a huge deterrent for like potential young generations of therapists. It's like, okay, live like a 75 year old man (laughs) or something who like just goes home and makes dinner and has no social media and doesn't do anything fun. And like, I don't know. It just seems like a very sort of like aged perspective on like what I I think a a modern therapist needs to be something much different. And I think you're sort of really nailing it. Um, But yeah, I am very curious uh, about how you guys are kind of like working to evolve um, sort of the modern therapy practice and also sort of like in tangent to that. I am really curious to know sort of what are the most, like if there are any like 
patterns you're witnessing in terms of like struggles that people are coming in with just based on the world that we're living in today? Um, I would love to know sort of like what the most common things are that you, that you deal with. And like, if there are patterns you're seeing and and all of that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Lots of patterns. (laughs) Um, I think, uh, regarding kind of like the, the first question about how we're trying to change that. Um, I think very like one of the biggest issues and feedback that I get from clients after onboarding with us and working with us is this idea that like they would call places and like never be able to get in, or they would never hear back from people, or they would, people will say like, I've been searching for a therapist for six months and you're the first person to get back to me. And, and that's just mind blowing to me because like we have, you know, a part of, you know, being, you know, on top of technology and having kind of things, systems and having things like really quick and maybe to our own, um, our own fault, uh, being kind of this millennial practice is we, we like to communicate like really quick, um, mm-hmm. same way like texting, um, which, you know, which is a boundary thing that I think that as millennials we have to be very, have to be very careful about that. You know, we can wait a little bit before responding, but that is something that is very important to me because from a, you know, some, when people are reaching out for therapy, they want to be heard. Um, even if it is that we have a wait list at the time or that, you know, we can only accommodate this or that, um, people knowing that and knowing it fast makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one of the big areas that I'm hoping to shift, um, or trying to shift in our practice, um, as well as having, you know, kind of presence, um, and normalizing things on technology with other like-minded, um, practitioners in New York city. Um, and I am also trying to expand that, um, as someone who is, who is Southern, um, and lives in New York, um, being able to, you know, cross state lines, getting licensed in other areas where maybe these things are not as effective, um, and being able to reach people in other locations, which is why telehealth is amazing. Um, I can have clients in, you know, I'm licensed in Texas and in North Carolina and being able to reach people and give them this experience that might feel very only New York City, mm-hmm. um, you know, being able to execute it and, you know, being really good on, you know, FaceTime, <laughs> Skype, like all of those things. We've had a lot of practice doing these things in our lives. So um, those are some of the ways. Um, regarding things that we're seeing like trend-wise um, with people reaching out for therapy, I would say the, strangely, the biggest one is just people reaching out for therapy for the very first time. Mm. I think that is for, you know, there's a lot of trends on like specific things people are coming for, but I think what's really significant with COVID is more than ever. I, I mean, the amount of people that are like, I've never done therapy before, but I'm very lonely or like I live by myself or I can't like my, you know, my family is, you know, far away or my mom is immunocompromised. I'm nervous about spending time with her and I have no one to talk to. Um, so a lot of this, like reaching out for therapy, not because they're in crisis, but because they, cause people feeling really alone and scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think COVID really did shift that narrative, um, versus maybe, you know, prior to COVID, maybe it was, you know, my, 
my partner broke up with me. I'm in crisis or I'm having anxiety, I'm in contact or I'm, you know, really don't like myself because of the way I look or that I don't have a boyfriend. Um, there's, you know, all of these things that were kind of, you know, unfortunately kind of more of these norm of things that we would see. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely this like reaching out for therapy because I just need someone to talk to maybe not even about anything specific, but just like, I want to have like one person, like someone to just talk to it once a week mm-hmm. and then going from there. Um, so I think that's a really important thing, um, to note and it's, and loneliness is probably one of the most cruel, cruel things that can come from this pandemic. So um, that's been wonderful to, to have that and for people to feel comfortable enough for, you know, with telehealth, I mean, I'm also seeing inside, <laughs> you know, I, I know what most of my clients' bedrooms look like and they yeah. talk about boundaries. Like, yeah. you know, we don't, they don't talk about that in therapy school. <laughs> they, they want like, you know, all of, all of this like privacy and like, you know, you're, you being a blank slate, your client, you're seeing them right in front of you, but it is, it's, it's hard to do that when you, you know, see their, you know, see their dog in the background, <laughs> things like that. Really? Um, other big things that, um, we've been seeing a lot of increase of, um, is I think a lot of obsessive compulsive disorder related to contamination. So, mm-hmm. A lot of fears we can remember at the beginning of COVID with, you know, don't touch your packages, wash your groceries. Um, the effects of those kind of rippling um, people that, you know, per, you know, did those behaviors for safety. Um, yeah. And now that they have kind of gone into other areas of their life, um, even when the risk has lessened, they have still, they have stayed very adamant at kind of maintaining behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be very hard. Um, of course, a lot of anxiety, depression, um, which was very, very present before because life is, life is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, and those things are, those things happen. Um, but maybe more specifically, um, with social anxiety, um, depression around, uh, you know, the thing I hear a lot is, you know, I have spent, you know, now we're going almost at two years, maybe these were people who were in college and they're like, you know, college is supposed to be the best time of your life. And I lost two years of college. I'm never going to get that again. Mm -hmm. Or I'm now, you know, I lost, you know, a a year and a half of dating and I wanted to be married by the time I was 30. And so all of these things that are just out of our control and there's no one to blame, but this projection of what my life was supposed to be Mm -hmm. and COVID ruined it and getting very stuck there. Um, that's, that's a really big one. Um, and also a really, um, large presence of eating disorders. Um, so not only did, you know, COVID, you know, kind of just took control away from a lot of us and, um, with eating disorders or disordered eating, you know, behaviors, Mm -hmm. um, we've had a lot of influx of, of clients reaching out being like, okay, well, all of these things that I used to do, um, like for, for health or maintaining a healthy body were taken. Um, and those behaviors got shifted into something that was not helpful. Um, that became much more controlled, um, with binge eating, anorexia, um, as kind of these control measures. Um, and I think one of the 
biggest things is, you know, talking about, when, especially in my work with women, normalizing that, you know, bodies change. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we're in a pandemic, bodies change and spending a lot of time discussing, um, you know, women with struggling with their self-image, self-worth. Um, and so that's, which is unfortunately pre-COVID that was always happening um, due to many societal, <laughs> many societal things um, that we deal with. Um, but with, you know, with COVID, um, definitely a different element when there's, there's been less supervision of people's well-being. Kids aren't going to school. People aren't going to work. They're not seeing families. Um, if we're, you know, engaged um, in things that are, are not healthy or well for us, they're not being as observed, um, yeah. which can allow people to get really, really, really sick and, um, and it can be, you know, much more risky. So, and I think one thing that everyone should recognize is that, and I tell this in, you know, webinars that I do on COVID and returning back to the office and the school is that COVID was trauma and we're all like human beings on planet earth. We're all experiencing like the effect of trauma. Yeah. Um, the things that we're desensitized to is we're not even aware of it. And I always use the example of on, on the news for a lot of the, a lot of time, a lot of the time, I mean, I, they might still be doing this, um, but they had like, a, they had a death count on TV and you could just sit there and watch how many people are dying of COVID. And when we think about that as like, you know, that's so, you know, we got so used to like, oh, like we, we've hit 500,000 deaths or we hit that. And to be able to think about that and not and it, us be completely desensitized to it. Yeah. That's, that's trauma. Totally. You know, if someone would have told us that five years ago, we would be like, that's horrific. That sounds like something out of a, like a horror film. Like what? Totally. Uh, New York city, we had morgues on the streets and like, I mean, people falling over and having oxygen masks on when I was, you know, going to Trader Joe's to get my groceries, <laughs> you know, like those were, these were things that were very real. And, you know, as a response, we, we all are kind of having to have a little bit of a blinder on to not really not be able to, to kind of feel the true effects and to keep moving forward. Um, so and that, that's just, everyone's experiencing that we may not all be aware of it. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing on all of that. I have a ton of questions. I think it's really interesting that, um, I'm sort of like wondering, even like in starting this, I was like, do I ask about treating people during COVID? Do I talk about COVID? I feel like the conversation around COVID is sort of exhausted, but also like from the very beginning, I always kind of had this huge sense of like, oh, like COVID's going to be hard after COVID in terms of mental health is going to be really hard. And mm-hmm. so in terms like that conversation and just hearing you discussing sort of how people experienced a heightened version of whatever they were dealing with before COVID during COVID and now having to sort of reacclimate to quote unquote normal life with what they experienced in isolation. It's just such a necessary conversation. I need to talk to you about how you're kind of helping people sort of come out of the past two years um, or a year and a half with what they experienced in there. But I'm just kind of so um, 
it's kind of just hitting me now when you talked about people's OCD getting really, really bad during COVID and eating disorders getting really bad. So when I sort of experienced the height of my eating disorder, it was when I went to college, I was at Barnard, it was winter. And I was all of a sudden, like I had gone from living in LA with my mom and my like cozy home and like this really like nice sense of family that I really relied on. I've always been such a homebody to all of a sudden being in a dorm by myself. It was basically like a mini self-inflicted lockdown for like a year and a semester. Cause I really like after that first polar vortex winter, didn't leave my dorm. I didn't want to leave. Barnard has a tunnel system that you can basically get to any class in a tunnel. I literally didn't taste fresh air for like months at a time. And that was when I really sort of fell into the depths of my eating disorder. And it became, it wasn't even, it was really sort of big picture negative. But during that time, like my eating disorder became such like a kind of, this sounds really awful, but like best friend slash coping mechanism. Cause it's, it filled all of my time. So I went from being so lonely and miserable to all of a sudden it was like, oh, well now I'm not lonely or miserable. Cause I have this thing that occupies all of my time. And I like thinking about it. Obviously yeah. now I realize it was a really sort of, um, it was not pleasant at all, but that was what I thought about 24 seven, but it did occupy all of my time. And it like, yeah. it was such a kind of crutch for me in filling days and days. Um, unfortunately it was super dangerous and not something that, that was a, I don't know, it was just overall a really bad situation, but it did sort of act as like a huge coping mechanism for me during that time. And I can't imagine it was like by some like higher power, like divine savior that my boyfriend and I moved in together right before COVID. Cause like with that being my issue, and I really know how my eating disorder manifests day to day in my own life, I don't know how I would have gotten through right. a year and a half by my, or like, I know that isolation was really strict for a while. And then I started seeing my mom and some of my, my friends and family, but I really don't know how I would have done that. Just knowing how it kind of affects my day-to-day -day life. I think I would have been in a much different situation than I am now. And I still did even like with living in a really light, like lovely situation with my partner and seeing my mom a lot and having a lot of support around me, I for sure like had relapse moments and struggled a lot. Um, it's been like a really thing. It's been a huge thing that I've had to actively monitor and it hasn't been easy. Um, yeah. and I, and a lot of the support that I received was through my therapist in telehealth. I've never met with, I actually got a new therapist during COVID that I haven't met in person yet, but we talk once a week, but yeah. I would love to know how you sort of, what are some of the ways that you helped people through that in, te in doing telehealth? Cause I know too, I have less experience with, um, like OCD. I didn't really, yeah. I mean, it manifested a little in my eating disorder, but I've never experienced like sort of in the traditional sense OCD, but I'm learning about it right now. And a lot of the sort of effective therapies involve like exposure therapy, which is very yeah. much an in-person thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would love to know how you sort of are dealing with the bigger mental health issues that you're dealing with over telehealth and how that worked in yeah. COVID. Yeah. Um, I think that telehealth can be really powerful. Um, and I think that we've, the, the best way to put it is, you know, like everyone else on earth, therapists had to think outside of the box. 
mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, get the needs of our clients met. So for, for like OCD in particular, right. If someone were coming to me in office and we were doing, um, you know, kind of like exposure exercises and things like that, it'd be easy. I could, we could, you know, work through it together. We could, you know, have like a piece of paper, we could sit and document, we could do activities together. Um, but with telehealth, you know, I, I, I look at kind of what do you like, what do you have in your apartment? Like, what can, what can we do right now? Like, do you have, let's make sure, do you have a glass of water? Like, do we have this? Do we have a, like a secure shared drive that we're able to kind of like keep documentation of, um, so that using technology, not just for the session, um, but for, for the treatment has been very important. Um, for instance, like all my clients have access to a, a shared drive that's full of worksheets and resources um, that they can use as supplement for session, you know, during session, um, you know, with uh, my EHR platform, you know, I'm able to share my screen, we're able to do things together. Um, and with exposure exercises, for instance, if, if this was someone that, um, maybe more specifically with like a phobia of like needles, mm-hmm. you know, would that be that I share my screen and we watch someone get a shot <laughs> and, you know, so maybe that's, that's something that I would rather do first, but maintain safety. So if someone would doing kind of a little bit more, um, pushing a little bit more with, you know, therapeutic techniques with someone that lived by themselves and has no supports, probably not. Mm -hmm. Um, if there's someone and their partners in the apartment and they can have some support there. Sure. Um, so it's also being realistic too. Um, there are limitations to telehealth. Um, we can't do like, for instance, um, I do, um, EMDR, which is a, a type of uh, trauma work. Um, and some, some clinicians are comfortable doing that where it uses eye movement, um, bilateral stimulation to help with processing and memories. Um, some people are able to feel comfortable doing that via telehealth. I, I don't. Um, so there are people that, you know, kind of have therapists have different boundaries of what they feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, there are going to be people that, you know, may show up and they are really symptomatic and very struggling in a way that I, I don't think it's safe for them to be seen via telehealth and would ask them to either come in or to access care at maybe somewhere with like a more of a healthcare institution, like a hospital Mm -hmm. clinic, um, where they could get the help that they need. Um, Yeah. I wanted to ask if you experienced that at all during COVID, like seeing someone, uh, maybe via Zoom or however you were seeing them, and you you did like notice that they needed a they had transitioned into a state where they needed a much higher level of care. Yeah. Was that something you experienced? Oh yeah, yes, absolutely. Oh, wow. um, so I yeah, and and when that happens, you know, I that's where you know, kind of we we have to be very honest. Mm-hmm. And there's like like look, I you know, expressing like I don't I don't think I'm the right person right now that can help and the here's how we're going to do this together. And is that, do we, do we need to, you know, call your friend? Do we need to make a safety plan? Do we need to like walk to the emergency room? Do you need to, you know, do you want me to stay on the phone with you while you walk over there? Uh, And those are, you know, and that's where like in the moment they could, you know, 
being, you know, let's say like I'm licensed in New York state. Right. So if I have a client that lives, um, you know, in long, they live in long Island and I live in Manhattan, it's not, I can't just like pop, you know, pop over and make sure that like, they're okay. Um, so that is, you know, with, with telehealth and in a part of my intake as a therapist, I always ask about who your supports are. Mm. So if we get to that moment, I can remind you like, all right, well, can you call, you know, can you call your, your cousin who I know lives down the street? What are they doing? Mm -hmm. Why don't you, why don't you text them right now while we're on, you know, while we're on the phone right now, see if they'll come over. Yeah. You know, so like having those things and that's a part of, you know, really getting to know your client, their supports before you even get into the, the, you know, the tough stuff or the risky stuff. Yeah, totally. And then now with transitioning out of COVID, I would love to know, at least in terms of like what you've seen in your clients, what kind of some of the biggest struggles people are having are, I just think it would be like, even for me, comforting to know what sort of everyone else is experiencing. And also for people listening, I think it's something that is really, I think we worked kind of really hard, like at least people that are sort of like aware of their own mental health and their kind of like sharing of mental health. I think it was definitely something that we all kind of had to work through in terms of like destigmatizing and sharing what our like COVID struggles were mentally and emotionally. Um, right. And I think now there is sort of this additional level of like stigmatization in terms of like what, how we're emerging. I think everyone had this whole plan to like emerge from their COVID experience as this like <laughs> glowing, healthful, rested version of themselves. Oh. And that's not yeah. happening. I'm le- losing yeah. COVID weight and I'm going on a COVID dot, whatever. Like I have all this time to work out. That's not true. No, no one is emerging from COVID like a glowing Adonis. We're all no. kind of like trauma victims like it's really and it's it's not what we imagined and I think people are really having a hard time being honest about like their state of being emerging so yeah I would love to know what you're kind of having to support oh my gosh I think um it's the ultimate act of acceptance Mm. right like COVID was something that none of us we none of us planned for it and we you know, we weren't like preparing for like global pandemic. Um, and a lot of people, like the things that we're, you know, experiencing, like going back in person to things, going to social events, dating again, going to weddings, um, putting on your work clothes from early 2020 and they don't fit. Mm -hmm. Um, like there are so, so, so many things. I mean, and I think across the board, social anxiety, just in all of those things, um, is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of those things come with like 20 different layers. I'm sorry. My dog's going to probably like start barking. <laughs> um, <laughs> she wants to, um, she wants to also talk about how hard COVID was for her, um, you know, just existing and, um, with, you know, coming at it from like returning to work here in the city, it's like, oh gosh, like getting on the subway, are they cleaning it? Like, are people wearing their mask? Like, and then anxiety about like, oh gosh, like, is, are people vaccinated? Like, do I need to know? Can I travel? Like everything has all of these different layers now and helping people with one there. I think the answer is a lot of people want to be like, well, what am I supposed to do? And none of us know, 
-hmm. not even your therapist. (laughs) And I think that's where we become much more of this and talk about not being a blank slate. Like, yeah, like I'm right there with you. I don't know. Like, yeah, it's really uncomfortable to, to not, you know, to be in this state of like, yeah, it'd be great to, you know, do a, B or C, but it is, it's a little unsettling. Is it the right thing to do? There is no right or there's no right or wrong. Um, cause we're, you know, we're, we're human beings and, um, we have to, you know, pick the, the best answer for yourself. Um, and as a therapist, um, maybe that's, you know, I've talked a lot about blank slate, but that's where like our job is to help people with them choosing the best for themselves, not us, not us putting those things on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do want to do want to clarify that while I, we are our, all try to be like our authentic selves, um, we're also not pushing our, you know, ensuring we're not pushing our own agenda or our beliefs. Um, cause that is incredibly harmful. Um, so that's, that is something that there is a difference in, which is yes, in that thing. sort of vein, I would love to talk to you about vaccination pressure. Oh yeah. Because so I never really felt, I mean, I definitely was to some extent like in the beginning when I hadn't received it yet. Cause I did kind of get it on the later end. I personally was, I wasn't vaccinated as a child. So my brother who's two and a half years older was diagnosed uh-huh. on the, um, like autism spectrum. Yeah. He had autism spectrum disorder when he was two and a half, he got diagnosed very early. Um, okay. And so it was during the time, and he was fully vaccinated as a baby, like received everything. And my mom was obviously terrified. She was really diligent in terms of getting him every therapy that she did research on that she knew would be helpful in terms of his cognitive functioning and, and every kind of functioning that, that could be improved. Um, like he, for instance, like wasn't supposed to be able to like even read properly or speak properly. And he fully, like, he did a lot of what is called like mainstreaming, which you know about. Um, he ended up going to like a normal high school and a normal college that he got into on his own. Like he, you would never know now he's just kind of like a quirky dude, but you would never (laughs) know that he's ASD ever. Um, but he was fully vaccinated. And when I was born two and a half years later, it was during like the peak of the time that people thought that vaccinations were what caused that. And my mom, when I was born, I seemed like totally normal. I mean, like as a really, like an infant, it's really hard to tell, but she was just terrified. So she didn't want me to get anything. And so I only was vaccinated very minimally when I went into like middle school and you have to get like measles, mumps, whatever. And like, there are a few that you need. And then eventually when I went to college, I got everything, but I've always been really scared of needles, scared of vaccinations, like kind of scared of everything. And so I kind of waited a bit. Um, and I did receive some pressure from like, honestly, no one, but my mom, ironically was like, you know, like your dad is older. I've been immune compromised. She had cancer and hepsi. Like there was things that she dealt with health wise where she was like, it would mean a lot to me if you got vaccinated. You also have like young nieces and nephews. Like, I think it makes sense. Finally, I ended up getting vaccinated, but it was my own decision completely. I also wasn't really, I was, I think I was really strong and good at being able to like take even like my mother's advice and like treat it as guidance and not really feel this like personal 
pressure. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't feel judged or anything, but I did have a lot of friends that I would talk to that would go hero. Like you're my, and not to like toot my horn or whatever, but they'd be like, you're my only friend that hasn't in some way, like kind of yelled at me for getting vaccinated or not getting vaccinated. Everyone has an opinion and everyone is really aggressively like pushing it on me. And what the hell do I do? And I heard this from a lot of friends and I would love to know, like, if you've had people talking to you about this in terms of like your clients oh. and also like what guidance you give them in terms of dealing with that. Cause people were yeah. really affected by all of that. Of, oh, of course. And I, I think that, you know, as, you know, as therapists we're we're people too, I have, I have beliefs and I have, you know, my outlooks on COVID and vaccinations, but it's really important that that is, that is not something that I bring in to session. And I do just, you know, I do disclose from like a, like a health and infectious disease perspective, you know, I do have regulations in my office. Um, you know, I do disclose that all of our therapists are vaccinated, um, and that, you know, we have, you know, certain mask mandates in our office, get tested, um, all of that, um, for like in-person stuff. And when I have, you know, when people are com- coming to me with those concerns and this comes up when I, um, I do a lot of like corporate wellness things. And a lot of the questions that come up are, you know, people going back to work and worried about knowing who's vaccinated and who's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do I, like, how do I voice, like, if I'm uncomfortable being in a meeting with someone for masks off, like there's so many, <laughs> there's so many things that, people can, are going to feel uncomfortable with and worried about. And, you know, there's, there are people, and this is how I I view it. Um, and I, how I explain it to clients that before COVID, there were people that made, made decisions for us Mm -hmm. in our lives and rules that we have to follow. You, everyone does get to make decisions for themselves. Um, but every, you know, with every decision we make comes, there is a a price to pay at some extent good mm-hmm. prices to pay and bad prices to pay. But with any decision we make, vaccine, where we go to school, what we're going to eat for dinner, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. There are we always have to think about by making by when I'm making this decision, what does this mean for my life? If I you know, I'm allergic to pineapple and if I eat something with pineapple in it, I know that I'm going to have hives. <laughs> if I, you know, if I, you know, make the decision to, you know, go on vacation for a week, I know that, you know, I'm going to have a, a great time, but I know I'm going to be exhausted, you know, really tired when I get home, you know, cause I'm going to be like wishing I was still there. So there's always like, we, we always kind of think about our lives in this way. And with vaccines, it's, it's the same, like deciding to get vaccinated, there are things that happen from that, um, you know, getting vaccinated. I had to take off work the whole next day because I felt so bad. So I was, I knew that I had to expect that. Um, and with not getting vaccinated, you know, there's, there are things for that too. Like what to expect with, you know, with like in New York city, for example, that's some, you know, something that comes up specifically here geographically is, you're, you know, are you okay with taking PCR tests to go see a concert at Madison Square Garden? Mm-hmm. Or are you okay with not eating indoors? Um, and really focusing on the control we do have. If it's important for you to advocate against 
things that people who make decisions for us, um, if you want those changes, then yeah, like you go and advocate for them. Um, but it's so much about like, there's, um, you know, just having our inner peace. And I think so much of the, the, the vaccination um, talk, um, you know, for it or against it is just disturbing a lot of people's inner peace. Mm-hmm. And um, COVID is a contagious, <laughs> a, a contagious virus. Um, and just ensuring that you are doing what you think is best to protect you from that virus and keeping other people safe. Um, is what I think is important. And then respecting, respecting each other as much as we can with human beings. It's a big wish for me to ask as a therapist, uh, but (laughs) that's in the ideal world. That's, that's kind of, and that's kind of how I help clients through it. Totally. Are Are there any specific practices that you sort of like prescribe to your clients to help them maintain that kind of inner inner sense of peace that you, that you mentioned when it comes to this kind of thing, whether it's like writing a checklist or like some reminders or yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know what you kind of like. Yeah. I, I'm a big advocate of of like telling people to not create chaos. Mm. Um, a lot of us like to create chaos when we're not feeling good about ourselves or when we're, when we're bored or maybe when we're, we're doing a task we don't like, it can feel really good to, you know, go like, you know, let's find something to create chaos about like this person I don't agree with on their Facebook post. I'm going to go and, you know, rip it apart and tell them they're stupid. (laughs) Um, and then maybe two days later, you're like, why did I do that? Why did I create all this chaos? And now I'm having, you've, now you're having to deal with other things. Um, so I always like, I follow the 10 minute rule too. It's another big tool is before making really kind of decisions that might be upsetting to other people. Um, just, you have to like 10 minutes to sit on it, Mm. um, set a timer, the 10 minute rule before making a big decision. Um, that could be even like, you know, I try to do that with, I'm deciding as even like, um, like with mindfulness, if like, deciding with like mindful eating, that's another, um, intuitive eating. That's a really big skill there too, is like, am I hungry? Am I not hungry? Like really kind of taking time to truly sit on kind of what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, those are kind of my two go-tos don't create chaos (laughs) and 10 minute rule. Really good ones. Pretty essential for just day to day. (laughs) Yeah. So I have to, I have to have to ask you, you said that you're you're licensed in Texas. Right? I am. So yeah. obviously there's been a lot going on there. Not only there, just like all over in the last, like COVID is one thing, but just like the social justice issues that we've sort of like come face to face with in the last couple of years have been really intense. Kind of one of the more recent of which have has been this sort yeah. of reproductive rights yeah. issue in Texas. And I would love to know how you've, if you've dealt with sort of an influx of people needing support there and wherever social justice issues at a certain given time, like in New York, obviously there have been a ton of these kind of like bigger issues. How have you seen, um, sort of clients needing support and how have you been able to kind of, like, I guess I'm also wondering if your like social worker hat, like really kind of like gets put on in that, 
in that Absolutely. sort of, when you're put in that position, I would love to know how you deal with, with people Absolutely. needing that kind of support. Oh, totally. Well, you know, as, um, as a woman and, you know, anytime that I, you know, I can see from a, from the government perspective that, you know, a woman's rights are being, you know, inflicted on and there, you know, there's discrimination happening. Um, that is, you know, essential for, it's essential for me. I am, you know, very open about, I, I do not agree with the, the, the legislation that has been passed in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially as a, a therapist and, um, I do something that I know priding as a social worker, you know, I, I do try to, you know, stay current with my, like my national organization and following, you know, their, their levels of support. They're the ones that have lobbyists in, and I really do like to ensure that I am aligned, um, with what they are promoting. Cause that is, that is my profession. Those, mm-hmm. those are people look up social work. That's what we're abiding by. Um, but even, you know, on a, from like a therapist perspective is that I, you know, I work with a lot of women that have experienced sexual trauma mm-hmm. and a lot of women that have been raped and a lot of women that have had miscarriages and a lot of women that have had to terminate pregnancies. And I think that those, those topics in particular are incredibly sensitive. And I think the decisions, you know, around them when, when women, especially like women in Texas, um, feeling like they, they can't make a decision, um, about their body and something so significant, um, is very traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the idea of a forced pregnancy doesn't, I, I think that's a, a very interesting term that I've heard come up, um, in like on social media wow. and yeah. that, and I, and I, I've, I myself have tried to process that a bit and what that even, what the, what does, what does that world look like as a, as a therapist treating women in Texas, having to, um, having to, to live with that and to, to deal with not having access to, to that kind of healthcare or help. Um, and I think that's, that is something that as mental health professionals, um, in the United States and in Texas, um, we have to be really mindful of, of, of kind of what, what that world looks like as well. Um, and how we would, how we would handle that. Yeah. So, so, how area. I'm just so curious, like when that first sort of, when that news first broke, how, as you said yourself as a, as a therapist treating patients or clients in Texas, how did you sort of initially process like how you were going to go about providing support to your clients at your female clients in, in Texas? Yeah. Did you sort of like formulate a plan I have no idea. I mean, how that must have felt. I, you know, from kind of, you know, the perspective of just very much like a check-in, like some people, this, you know, doesn't affect, you know, I work with a lot of, a lot of people. There's, um, uh, there's a, I'm I'm a big fan of the Avett brothers band and they have a song called, uh, that where it says like, your life doesn't change by the man that's elected. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that line is like, is, is wonderful. Um, and I try to, especially, you know, during like thinking about like election time, that was like a, a quote from like one of a lyric from one of their songs more so, um, that I brought up a lot with clients and like, 
you know, talking about your daily life and how that affects you about what's going on in our world. Um, so yeah, I think a check-in and it was like, is this affecting you? Have you had time to think about this? Is this something you're worried about? Mm-hmm. If it is like, how is it worrying? If, does this feel like something that you need to speak about? This is something that your family agrees with and you don't really just kind of assessing where, where the things that are happening in our world, for instance, the, you know, abortion, um, the abortion law that passed in Texas, where does that live in their life? Do they, did their home life change because now their, their parents are like, yes, this is amazing. Do they not feel like, are they, do they feel like they're going to lose friends over this because they have different views on it? Mm -hmm. Did they, are they worried because maybe there's someone that, um, you know, engages in, in, in behaviors that could, you know, put them at risk for needing services from like from Planned Parenthood, not just pregnancy, you know, there's lots of other services. Um, you know, I've worked with women who, who are sex workers and that pregnancy, you know, birth, birth control, you know, isn't always a hundred percent. What does this mean for their lives, um, and their safety? And so, so many, like, there's like a thousand different scenarios of how that could present and just their, their mental health, um, and their environment and their support systems. So, um, how, how to kind of just like individualize, what can we do to help you feel better about it or feel empowered? Yeah, totally. I completely agree with that. And I think that not only when it comes to this particular issue, but just in a lot of different issues nowadays, I think that it's so easy to feel like every last thing is your personal problem just because of how much things are sort of like touted on the internet. And it's just all so extreme and so in our faces at all times that even if it is like, whether it's very personal to to your life or so far away, all of it can seem like um, sort of like our, our own like personal duty to take mm-hmm. on. And I think yeah. really assessing whether or not that's true on a case by case, like topic by topic basis is so critical to keeping sort of a clear state of mind. It can become so overwhelming, especially with again, like social media and the internet and everything. It just like at all times, everything just kind of piles on. So I think that that advice is just like, so crucial for everyone to kind of put into action. Of course. And, you know, and I think, you know, I, like I mentioned earlier, you know, being a social worker, a big piece of why I loved taking that route was kind of the advocacy piece and look like, you know, we, you know, social workers have the stigma of being these like huge, you know, like bleeding heart, you know, we're going to go save the world and, um, you know, type of philosophies and, and look, that, that, that feeling can, you know, feel really good, but there's, there's so much, there's too much. You have to kind of hold on to like, what are the things that are, are very important to you and that you value? Um, and how do we, how do we kind of advocate for those without, you know, without disturbing like your inner peace? Um, because if you don't have that, then you can't be an advocate for for what you're passionate about. Um, and sa- sacrificing ourselves is the, is, is not the way to go. And that's a, I think a, a whole new huge shift and, um, talk about like work from home and the barriers of like, you know, work hours and, um, uh, you know, women in the workplace, there's, I mean, there's just, that's, 
being represented and hopefully more to come. Um, yeah. but we have to, yeah, we have to be very careful that we're, we're also living our life. Um, so you only got one and the things that we can change go for it, but there, there's a lot that we can't as completely one person. Yeah. I completely, completely agree with that. I think a lot of even like personally, what I'm going through right now, um, is all about just kind of like finding clarity and a little bit of stillness and just really getting to know myself and what I want. I, for instance, can get like very flustered by the like social media. I love to talk about like in an exhausting way, like I love to talk about social media and like the way that I think it affects people. And like, I think it for, for some people they can like have it and it's totally casual and great. I have a really hard time. Like it, if I am someone who tends to compare myself to my, it's weird because I don't even compare myself at the end of the day to other people. I find myself like comparing myself to the version of me that I've created on the internet. And I don't even have like a huge following. I have like a normal private Instagram, but it affects me in a crazy way. I deleted the app off of my phone like a week ago and I just like haven't looked at it, which has been really nice for me. It's like a very necessary break, but (laughs) I focus on a lot is just like, really focusing on living my life. This sounds so kind of like corny and whatever, but like it just like very in a very present way and focusing on like, not always, I think social media and everything can like really make you focus on like your image and your bigger picture and like your position, your role in the society and like these huge things. And it's like so exhausting. Like I just, it's so just focus on like the task at hand, whether it's like making lunch or like seeing your friend, yeah. like do that. And for me, that's yeah. so nice and so necessary. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that that is not only like a little issue that like I deal with sort of like now, but I think everyone is kind of in that, in this sort of like same vein dealing with this issue of like needing to find some like clarity and stillness with like just existing in their life and in a more simple way. Um, and I, as I think about like my goals as a future therapist and what I want to focus on and the clients that I'll be working with, I think that that's going to be the most essential, essential goal of mine is to kind of help people sort of like find clarity and simplicity and just like existing in their lives to be a pleasant and like, you know, experience. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's so important and it's so hard. (laughs) And I think, yeah, like we're always trying, like, I'm still, I I don't have the answers to that either. Um, I don't think no amount of therapy can, can fix what, what the, you know, the, the world we live in too, but it's, it's about how we, how we handle it. And if you can, you know, delete the Instagram phone off your app and have a, have a week and notice how it feels and how it feels different in your life, then that's, that's progress doesn't mean you have to have Instagram off your phone forever, but now no, it's know. a helpful tool. Just like you were yeah. saying for the second that I sort of like got rid of it, even like the, the, it was like five minutes after I did all of a sudden I was like, Oh, but like my podcast, Instagram, like people really <laughs> do enjoy it. And it's like, not just me posting photos of like my like backyard. It's like actually <laughs> like yeah. a really helpful, nice thing for people. Like it's not maybe something that I should just do away with. So yeah, it's hard to find <laughs> balance. I think balance is like the most key thing that everyone is sort of striving for. And it's, it's very difficult to, to sort oh, of attain. Absolutely. Yeah. But whoever has the secret, I'll, I'll, I'll 
I'll take it for sure. <laughs> so in just like wrapping up, um, I would love to know if there are any sort of main with like the kind of spectrum of things that you deal with and like help people through. I would love to know if there are like some overarching tidbits of advice that you find yourself kind of like doling out the most that you like truly feel are are effective in like a number of ways. Like if there's like a, if there are some like, not like one liners, but yeah. like just like off the top, like what are <laughs> your sort of like most important to you pieces of advice as a therapist that you've kind of found to be really crucial to not only like your practice, but also just your personal philosophy as a therapist. Totally. Um, I think my, my go-to one that I find that I actually learned from a therapist I had when I, years ago that I stole from, stole from her. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, but it's like, you know, it, it's used all across the board, but it's my favorite one is, um, really kind of viewing yourself no matter what you're experiencing, but I, I like to guide patients to like thinking about a time that they maybe like as a kid that they were really, really happy. And there's always, even if it was just for five seconds, maybe you had a horrible childhood, but you know, your teacher brought in cupcakes or, um, maybe it was like when you went to Disney world with your family or it was, you know, your 15th birthday, whatever it was thinking about that, like five seconds and who you were in that moment mm-hmm. and being able to like, think about what you're experiencing. And if it's most of the time, it's self-doubt or low self-esteem or thinking that like all of these like mean girl talk, as I call it, um, to yourself. And I like to just have people imagine that version of themselves and what would it feel like to tell it to them? Like if that version of yourself was right in front of you, if like eight-year-old Mary was sitting in front of me and I sat here and told her all the things that I tell myself, how would that, what would that be like? Mm -hmm. And of course it would be horrific. You would never, you would never do that. And so being like, well, then why do you tell that to yourself now? Um, and the kind of the takeaway from that is, you know, thinking that, you know, all of these different versions of yourself, you know, five-year-old Mary, 15-year-old Mary, um, you know, hopefully future 80-year-old Mary, like, like all of these versions of ourselves are like within us. Um, and that we're always like having to protect versions of ourselves. Mm. So if you're, you know, if someone's coming to me saying they're in a really bad relationship and I'm saying, well, I, you know, would you, would you let that happen? Would you let that guy you're dating say that to 10 year old Mary? Absolutely not. So why are you letting it, why are you letting 25 year old version of you have that either? Yeah. Um, that's like one of my favorite things to do. Cause we, we really do think about ourselves in the here and now and what we, you know, what we deserve. And a lot of us think that we're, you know, we can be very quick to be like, we're such crappy people. We're awful humans. We don't deserve anything, Yeah, but not true because all of these other parts of ourselves have got us here and we have to, we have to protect them too and respect them. Oh, I love that one so much. My, it's, that's been, my dad told me that actually once he like showed me a baby picture of myself when I was really going through a rough time and was like, you need to like take care of her. Like, look at this baby and just like take care of her. If you, even my, if you 
are having such a hard time taking care of 19 year old you, like you're still this little person, like take yeah. care of her. And it hit me so, so oh. hard. And then I saw yes. sort of like a funny little like Tumblr graphic the other day that said like, stop being so mean to yourself. It's hard to be a happy person when someone is constantly being mean to you. And like yeah. the someone is, you. and I was like, oh, that's so true. Like if someone was constantly like telling you awful things about yourself, it's really hard to like be a Gosh. functioning, let alone yeah. happy person. So yeah. I think like, how could anyone so love you? Right. Like how could anyone make you happy? If you can't, you have to make yourself happy, even just a little bit, even for five seconds and completely getting yeah, like your, your dad showing you the baby photo. I, I tell people to like, find the photo, put it on your desk, put mm-hmm. it on your phone. Like totally. find that picture of yourself to just bring you to reality. Like that's, that's who you are. Not, not the version of yourself you're seeing in the mirror. Oh, so I cute. Look, you have it right there. I have it. Yeah. I'll put it as my phone background too. Like a little like photo of me yeah. and like a dog or like me as like when I'm two or something. It's yeah. Always. Yes. Yes. Well, Cause that's, that's who you are. It I is. Love it. It so is. We need to protect them. Well, thank thank you so, so much for taking the time. This has been so lovely. And I can't wait to see you when when I'm in New York next. And if ever you're in LA too, we we need to see each other in person. Oh my gosh, of course. Yeah, but I'll be back soon. I'll be back on the East Coast soon. And I would love to to come into the the practice and meet you. Come to the office and we'll have tea and get to relax on on my very comfy couch that I pride myself in. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to. I would love to. Thank you so much so welcome hero look forward to seeing you soon bye thank you bye